Our reading this evening is from Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and the God, the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Jay. My name is Phil. I'm assistant minister here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if you're new here. It'd be lovely to meet you if you've been here for a while, but particularly nice to meet you if you're new. Let's pray and then we'll look at this passage together. You've got an outline so you can see where we're going. We're going to stop, I think, at verse 9, um, but we'll work our way through according to this outline. And keep, do keep your Bibles open. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of the gospel as we look at Galatians over the next term. Help us to see how wonderful the good news of all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ is. And help us, Father, to be people who are protected from drift. People who stand firm on your truth. Amen. I wonder, is there anything that you care about enough you'd cause a real scene? Have you ever, at a family gathering, stood up and called out a relative in public? You know, cause real embarrassment. Or has anybody here joined a protest march? Anybody here ever been on a protest march? There's a few. Have you ever cared enough about something that you've got involved in a fight? Don't put a hand up. <laughs> Some people fight just because they love to fight. There was a guy at my university who was like that. He just loved to throw a punch. And so um, at kicking out time at the pubs, he would go to the chip shops um, and look to provoke fights because he just loved to get stuck into fights. That's a pretty ugly way to behave. Other people uh, fight because they don't love fighting at all. But they do love something very precious, something very noble and something very good that's being threatened. And the only way to protect it is to stand up, to fight to save it. Now, this book of uh, Galatians, this letter that we're going to be studying over this term is uh, perhaps the very first of the letters to be written in the New Testament, perhaps uh, the very first document in the New Testament to be written. And Paul, who wrote it, is picking a fight. That's what he's doing. 
And it's not because Paul loved to fight. He didn't. He's picking a fight in this letter because he loves Jesus. And he loves people. And he loves the truth. And he knows that there is no other salvation than Jesus Christ's salvation. And so when other people try to deny or distort that, Paul will not stay quiet. And Paul will stand up. And Paul will speak out. And Paul will pick a fight with them. Now, Christians uh, must not take up arms and fight physically for our faith. We must not do that. You can't call yourself a faithful follower of Jesus if you fight physically for Christianity. But we must be willing to contend, to speak out, to argue, to debate, to fight verbally, if you like, for the truth of the gospel if it's challenged, whether it's denied or distorted. And I guess tonight what the Spirit... Um, really does in Galatians 1, 1 to 9, is challenge each one of us. If I call myself a Christian, do I share Paul's zeal for the truth of Jesus Christ? Do I have a zeal that cuts through the sort of indifference and the social niceties, and for many of us the Englishness, that means we could never imagine making a scene? Do I really care about Jesus and the truth of his gospel? That's, that's the question I've been wrestling with this week and which this passage forces on each one of us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, you're very, very welcome here. Um, in one sense, this explains why it is Christians get so uh, upset and so serious and so concerned about, uh, about what they believe, why they're not happy just to let people believe whatever they like. Uh, let's see uh, the reasons as we go through. But uh, before we uh, get into the, the meat of the passage, just a couple of words about Galatia. There should be a map um, that we've got up here. So Galatia is the um, is the bit in the middle between the two lilac bits. You can see Galatia written up there. It's in uh, what we call modern Turkey. And Paul and his team in about AD 47-48 went on the first missionary journey taking the, the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, out into uh, the wider Mediterranean area. And so they went through the, the, the bottom section of Galatia, really, through the major towns. And to say it was an eventful trip would be a mild understatement. In Pisidian Antioch, uh, right over to the west, when Paul started to speak, people were so amazed at what he was saying that the next day the entire city stopped work, shut up shop, and came out to hear him. In Lystra, they began by worshipping Paul because they thought he was a god, and they ended up stoning him almost to death and dragging him out of the city. In other towns, there were assassination plots against him, and yet also people turned to Jesus in their hundreds and thousands. And in every one of the major cities along that trade route, there were churches established as people heard about Jesus for the first time, both Jews and Gentiles, that is uh, the Bible's word for non-Jewish people, and churches grew. Thousands of people became Christians. And now what Paul is doing in Galatians is he's writing to this church to tell them how to, how to keep following Jesus. So here we go. Let's dive in at verse 1. The heart of the gospel is God's grace. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us 
from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The letter begins, if you've read through the New Testament, you'll start to recognize it begins in a fairly standard way. Uh, Paul introduces himself, tells us who he's writing to, and then greets them with grace and peace. But he does so, even in these first couple of verses, in a way which already raises up, uh, like the overture of a piece of music, the two major themes that are going to dominate the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians. Firstly, Paul's authority as an apostle. You can see that in verses 1 to 2. And then secondly, the gospel itself, the message of salvation through Jesus, the truth that, as we'll see, sets us free. And then in the letter, you'll see uh, chapters one and two really uh, dig into this uh, theme of Paul's authority to, to teach them and correct error. Three and four get to the heart of what the gospel is and how it's being challenged in Galatia. And then five to six explain, okay, if I, if I do believe that gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul proclaims, what does it look like to live that out? So that's the letter. Now, I don't want to spend uh, too much time on verses one to two because we'll look into in this theme of Paul's authority much more next week. But just note that he stresses we should listen to him uh, because he's an apostle whose authority comes from Jesus Christ. Verse one, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And secondly, because he's not some weirdo maverick, he stresses all the brothers and sisters who are with me. He's saying, look, I'm not teaching some sort of weird This is Paul's strange, offshoot, slightly odd version of Christianity that only I really teach. Now, this is standard, basic, true, apostolic, Jesus-taught Christianity. This is the real McCoy. I'm not teaching anything different from what Jesus gave to his apostles. And then in verses 3 to 5, he briefly summarizes what is this apostolic standard Christianity? What is at the heart of it? And we call this summary the gospel. You'll see why in verse 6, because he says, um, you're deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So verses 3 to 5, this is the gospel. 3 to 4 and 5, this is the gospel. And then 6, don't go to a different one. Now, gospel um, just means good news or good announcement. And we see what it is in these verses. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. The New Testament sets out this gospel, this good news, good announcement, in a number of different ways. You can read in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Mark 1, 15, or in the the sermons throughout the the book of Acts. Different ways that the, the authors explain the gospel, but all of them, all of them have at their heart the same thing. All of them have at their heart the good news that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary to save us. That's the gospel. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary to save us. All of them have that at the very heart. Uh, I wonder if you can see that here. It's about Jesus giving himself for our sins, verse 4. That is dying on the cross in our place to take the punishment for sins we deserve. In order to, verse 4, rescue us so that, verse 3, we might have peace with God. 
It's a very, very brief little summary here, but there are just three things I want to emphasize from it. Firstly, the gospel is about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. There is lots about what we should do in Christianity, loads. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for us. That's why it's called good news, not good advice. That's why in verse 6 it's summarized as the gospel of grace. As Ben explained at the beginning of our time together, grace is getting good stuff I don't deserve. I haven't earned. Grace is Christmas, not your pay packet at the end of the month. Stuff you don't deserve and haven't earned. And so God gets all the glory, we read in verse 5, because he has done all all that is necessary for our salvation. All glory to him, he did it all. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. We'll see this again and again. Secondly, the gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Jesus did all sorts of things. At the end of John's gospel, he said, look, if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, you would fill all the books in the world. All the books in the world. Jesus taught He healed, he cared for the poor, he welcomed the outcast. He lived as a perfect example for us to follow. But none of those things is the gospel. They don't save us. You're not saved by listening to Jesus' teaching. You're not saved by receiving a miraculous healing from Jesus. You're not saved by following Jesus' example. We're saved from our sins by trusting in his death in our place. That's the gospel. The gospel is about what Jesus did for us, not what we do for him. The gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the third little thing that we notice in these verses is the gospel is, well, it it is a message. It is news. It is an announcement. But it is not purely intellectual information. It's not some abstract doctrine. It's about a person, Jesus. That's why the four historical accurate accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, which record the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, are called the four Gospels. You see, because the Gospel at heart is not a series of doctrines, of things you've got to um, sign up to. At the heart is the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospel at the heart is the person of Jesus Christ. I wonder, um, did you see the fabulous little news story from Uttar Pradesh uh, in India this week? A school had been built That was uh, right next to an army artillery range. Location, location, location. (laughs) And uh, there are 400 little kids at this primary school. And one day the kids find something exciting in the playground. And the teachers come to investigate and realize that doesn't look a whole lot like a toy. Local police sergeant comes to have a look and realizes it's a 10 kilo high explosive shell with a blast radius of about 500 meters. Oh. No bomb squad available. And so this sergeant, Abhishek Patel, just went straight in and grabbed the bomb. And he clutched it to his chest. And there's this marvelous internet video of him running up and down through the jungle. But the amazing thing is, when you you see the uh, the pictures of him running through the jungle, is that it comes from a video. Somebody's heard he's got this bomb. And so they thought, I know what I'm going to do. There's a guy with a 10 kilo high explosive shell that he's shaking up and down. I'm going to run next to him and video it because, you know, what's the, you know, I could be blown to smithereens, but on the other hand, there could be a million YouTube hits in here for me. And it's, but Abhishek said afterwards, wonderfully, he rather played down what he did. He said, I thought their 400 lives 
were more valuable than just my single life. Now, it's different from what Jesus did in a whole load of ways. For a start, he didn't actually die. But what that wonderful little story from India captures about the gospel is something that is repeated again and again and again in Galatians and something that was being attacked again and again and again in the churches that Paul's writing to. And that is, those children did not save themselves. They did not contribute anything to their salvation. He saved them. He did everything. He risked his life to save theirs. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. Jesus does it all. The gospel is the good news that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary to save us. Okay, secondly, if you change the gospel, you lose it. Verses 6 to 7. Now, at this point, it is worth looking at how Paul's other letters to churches in the New Testament begin. The first few verses are not so unusual. It's me, Paul the Apostle, to you, the churches in Galatia, Thessalonica, Mayfair, wherever. Grace and peace to you. And then, well, if you flick on a couple of pages to, uh, say, Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Or another page to Colossians, the next letter. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith. Uh, or the next letter, which was written uh, possibly almost the same time as uh, Galatians, or just after it. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Even a church is utterly messed up as the one in Corinth where people are sleeping with their own mother-in-laws and suing each other in church. Paul still writes to them, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus Christ. For in him you've been enriched in every way. So we know what to expect. Paul to the church in Blah, grace and peace, I thank God for you greatly. Only instead of a warm encouraging prayer, we basically get a verbal slap in the face. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Oh, it's rather awkward. But actually, it's not the readers who are the most shocked people at this point. It is Paul. I am astonished. Astonished. Why is he astonished? Because you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished at the speed of what's taking place. It may be as little as a year between when Paul preached about Jesus and now when they're turning away to something else. Just like the Israelites at Mount Sinai, the Galatians are quickly turning to their own golden calf. Why have they done it? Well, verse 7, it seems people claiming to be Christian teachers have come, probably from Jerusalem, and taught them a different gospel. Now, we'll see later on in the letter uh, what the precise issue is. It seems that they said, trust in Jesus Christ, that's the truth. But it's not the whole truth. If you really want to be right with God, then you do need to trust in Jesus Christ, of course. But there there are some rituals that you need to perform, and there are some laws you need to keep. And we'll see, um, if you want to jot down the references, if you want to chase it up, 2 verses 3 to 5, chapter 5 verses 2 to 6, and 6, 12 to 13, those issues are explored. 
But you see, the gospel is the good news that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary to save you. As soon as you add something to that that I have to do, it stops being the gospel at all. Uh, One for the scientists here. Think of a vacuum. I heard one person explain this as. If you've got a vacuum and you add a bit of air to it, it's no longer a vacuum. It's not an air-enriched vacuum or a 90% vacuum. It is just not a vacuum. If you add anything I have to do to the gospel... It just stops being good news. It's no longer the gospel, because the gospel is God has done everything for our salvation. And look, at this point, we do need to realize, as awkward as it is, and as unpopular as it is, that there are false teachers. There are false teachers who explain the gospel wrongly. There have been in every age of the church. Let me ask you, how do you respond if someone suggests to you that a book that you've really enjoyed or a speaker or a blogger who you find very helpful might actually be dodgy, might be teaching falsehood? Now look, it is fine to defend them. If you think they're sound, then defend them. But don't say that is ridiculous. They wouldn't be this popular if they are heretical. They wouldn't have their books sold in a Christian bookshop if they're a false teacher. Don't be stupid. Look, it is good to believe the best about people. But it is also important to be realistic. If you respond to every email you receive by believing the best, you will find your bank account cleaned out quite regularly. The false teachers who arrived in Galatia did not have t-shirts that said false teacher. They didn't have 666 tattooed on their foreheads. They talked about Jesus and they said a whole heap of stuff that was true and helpful and made people feel really good. Otherwise, no one would have believed them. What I want to do now, actually, is to show you a list of, I think it would probably be helpful just to give you a list of all the speakers and writers that at CCM we would say you can trust completely. Here's the list. (laughs) There is no such list. The only entirely reliable, infallible source of truth about God and life is the Bible. Every other speaker, every other book, every sermon you hear needs to be measured against the Bible. And so, even our favorite Christian leaders, we need to be willing to recognize they may make mistakes, they may get things wrong. And we must be willing to stop reading, to stop listening, to stop following people if they depart from the truth. It's not enough that they talk about Jesus and say lots of true things. They need to teach the truth, the whole truth about Jesus, and nothing but the truth about Jesus. Okay, well, at this point, it would be quite useful to know what counts as a false gospel then. At <laughs> you know, uh, what point do you stop just being, well, these are differences that um, are within the family, and at what point do you start saying, this means you're not even part of the family? Where do you get to a false gospel? I think there's probably three ways that, um, as you look through church history, Christians have recognized the gospel being undermined and false gospels coming in. Firstly, is when people have changed what we're saved from. When people have changed what we're saved from. So uh, God won't really judge. 
And so the gospel is no longer about us being saved from eternal judgment. Or uh, much more contemporary, actually, that, that, happen, that happens all the time. But in these last few years, one of the biggest issues has been changing what sin is. So if we redefine what sin is, I no longer need to repent of it. I no longer need to be saved from it. Well, that's changing the gospel. Because in Galatians 1, we're told that, verse 4, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. And so once people start saying what the Bible says is sin is not really sin, they're changing the gospel. And that's why the current debates about what is and what isn't sexual sin matter. It's not a small thing. It's not a agree to disagree. It's a redefining of the gospel. So changing what we're saved from. Secondly, changing what the gospel does. So the gospel saves us from our sins and brings us into a right relationship with God so that we'll have eternal life and paradise in the future. The prosperity gospel in its more ugly form says that actually poverty and sickness are the great problems in your life. And what the gospel does is release us into a new life of health and wealth now. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That's a perversion, the prosperity gospel, and it's a wicked lie and it doesn't work, except for the people who preach it, who get very rich indeed. So changing what we're saved from, changing what the gospel does, and thirdly, changing how we're saved. And this is what's going on in Galatia, as we'll see in this letter. Saying that it's not enough to trust in Jesus' death. There are other things we have to do too. And we must always beware that because that's the one which our hearts just naturally seem magnetized towards. We like to be able to say there's something I've done. So beware false gospels. And we'll see why we should be very wary of them in the next couple of verses. Changing the gospel is no small matter because those who change the gospel are under God's curse. Verses 8 to 10. Uh, Actually, we'll just do 8 to 9. Now to our ears, I think these sound like some of the most shocking verses in the New Testament. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He's saying, if you preach a gospel other than the true one, then you should be damned to hell. That is literally what Paul says. And it's brutal, let's be honest, but it's not unfair. Uh, Firstly, notice uh, Paul is an equal opportunities cursor here. He's not condemning that particular group over there. He's saying anybody, if an angel from heaven does it, they should be damned. If I do it, Paul says, then I should be eternally cursed. And secondly, remember what the stakes are. All humanity is under God's curse, rightly, justly, because of our sins. But in his immense kindness, God has come down in the person of Jesus to die on a cross, to take that curse for us, Galatians 3.13. He suffered the curse for us. In other words, Jesus, if you like, went to hell on the cross for us in our place. So that instead of being slaves to sin, we could become sons and daughters of God. Instead of being sentenced to death and cursed, we could enjoy eternal life and blessing in paradise. Now to pervert that truth, to push people away from trusting in that salvation, that's a hell-deservingly wicked thing to do. 
lives are at stake, eternal lives are at stake. To tell those school children in India, it's all right, you don't need to worry, it's, it's fine to play with a bomb. It's really, really fine. No harm will come. To tell them, don't worry, you don't need anybody else to help you, you can diffuse it yourselves. Go on, have a go, here's some pliers. You'd be right to condemn somebody for that. Our eternal destiny, your eternal destiny, hinges on the gospel. The difference between heaven and hell is the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel of his death and resurrection. And so to deny or to distort that is an accursed thing to do. Okay, as we close, how should we live in the light of this? Well, firstly, be careful. Be careful. It's easy in our um, cultural time to think, it doesn't matter precisely what I believe, so long as I'm sincere. That's what counts with God. Judgment Day is not going to be some doctrine exam after all. Now, sincerity does count with God. Jesus has got no time for a religion that doesn't affect my heart. But when I say to God, I'm sure you don't care much about whether I believe the true gospel. What you care most about is whether I'm sincere. What I'm actually saying to God is, I sincerely don't care about your truth. That's not humble or godly or spiritual. It's just arrogant. And the thing is, you can be sincerely wrong. Do you remember that awful story in 2008 about the the baby food scandal in China? A baby company had been adding melamine to its formula, which meant that when they did tests in the laboratory, it looked like they were very high-protein baby food. And so parents who were concerned about the nutrition of their baby bought them in large quantities because they were cheap. So for poor people, it was wonderful. But it turned out that melamine's toxic. And six babies died and 54,000 were hospitalized. The mothers sincerely believed they were buying nutritious things that would help their babies live and grow healthy. But that sincere belief really wasn't much use to the babies because the product was toxic. Doctrine Day won't be a doctrine exam. Uh, Judgment Day won't be a doctrine exam. But it is only the true gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sins. And no matter how sincere I am, if I'm trusting in a toxic product, trusting that my good works will be enough to get me through judgment day, for example, if I'm trusting in a toxic gospel, then I'll be in trouble on judgment day. It matters that you trust the true gospel. So be careful. Uh, Be careful too. We sang um, earlier on, we're prone to wander. Don't assume you could never drift. It's not enough to have put my trust in Jesus in the past. I need to keep digging into the inexhaustible riches of the gospel. Now, Christianity, if you like, is roller skating up a very slight incline. If I'm not going forwards, there is no standing still. I'm, I'm slowly rolling backwards. I need to keep pressing on. Because I'm either getting closer to Jesus or drifting further from him. We are prone to wander. We are prone to wander, but so are those we know and love. Each of us here tonight will have friends, family and colleagues who, like us, are being lured by false gospels. And God has put you in their lives for a reason. It is no accident that God put you in their lives. Don't stand by, love them enough to speak to them, pray for them, debate with them graciously. Be careful. Secondly, be angry. Now, I do need to be careful with this. We've got to be careful when we talk about anger. 
Now, some people are far too willing to pick a fight and spot a heretic. Anytime you go to a Christian convention, there's a wingnut outside handing out leaflets telling you that the speaker is a heretic. Whatever convention, whatever speaker, I guarantee Matt speaks at conventions, I'll bet you there are wingnuts out there handing out leaflets accusing him of heresy. It just happens. But, But for most of us in our generation, the issue is that we, not that we stand up too quickly and spot error far too fast, it's that we never stand up. We're never willing to say that's wrong. We're never willing to fight for the truth. But when precious truths and wonderful freedoms are threatened, good people do not shrug their shoulders and agree to disagree or say, that's okay for you, but I see it differently. Good people get angry. 500 years ago, a monk called Martin Luther got very angry because the medieval Roman Catholic Church hid the gospel from people. They were not taught to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, but to trust in all sorts of stuff the church did. And that made Luther angry. And when the church wouldn't let them read the Bible in their own language to work it out for themselves, he was angry. So he took action, not because Martin Luther loved to fight, but because Martin Luther loved the Lord Jesus and Martin Luther loved people like you and me. A little over 50 years ago, when another Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, saw 100 years after the American Civil War, people were still treated as subhuman just because of the color of their skin, he got angry and he took action, not because he loved a fight, but because he loved freedom and people and those things were being wickedly denied. That's why people gathered in protest in Charlottesville a few weeks ago. When you hear white supremacists are holding a Nazi glorifying rally in your town, you don't shrug your shoulders and stand idly by. And the more precious and important the truths and freedoms are that are being denied, the more angry we should be and the more we're obliged to say something, to do something. And so if we truly love Jesus and the undeserved life-giving, life-changing gift of the gospel, then we will be people who stand up for the truth lovingly, graciously, but courageously and clearly. We'll stand up for the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And whether it's friends, families, or church leaders who deny or distort the gospel, we won't stand idly by. You and I have got to be willing to speak out in homes, offices, universities, and churches. We should care as Paul cared because lives are at stake and the gospel is the most wonderful truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't like talking about these things. Uh, we, don't, we don't like to uh, ruffle feathers. And our Father, I pray we would never be people who love a fight. But I do pray that we would be people who love the Lord Jesus in the honor of his name and who love other people and so are desperately keen to ensure nothing stops them hearing the true gospel. And so I pray that we would have a passionate zeal for the wonderful truths of the gospel. That means we're willing to stand up when it's denied. Father, I pray this. And I pray that you would help us to do so carefully and graciously. But I pray that we would not be wanting in courage. For your great glory's sake we pray. Amen.